Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's featured preacher is Howard Hendricks. Here's what Prof. Hendricks said to Dallas Morning News in 2003. You're looking at a completely fulfilled human being. If I died today, having produced some of the people God has given me the privilege of shaping, it will have been worth showing up on the planet. Hundreds of Christian organizations were created as a result of Prof's ministry to his protégés. In the words of one Dallas Theological Seminary graduate, he impacted more lives personally than anyone I've ever known. Prof once said, I think the reason God has used me is that by His grace, the Holy Spirit has developed in me an incurable confidence in His ability to transform people. Prof went beyond communicating what students should do to convincing them that they could. According to a 2003 Dallas Morning News article about him, the combined ministries of just eight of his former students, a veritable who's who of evangelical Christians, reach close to 30,000 people in pews every week. And you add radio programs and books to that number, the audience expands to millions. Today's message from the prof is leadership in the family. alarming trends in America today, transparent to the thinking Christian, is the disappearance of the distinctively Christian home. I refer not merely to a home where Christ resides, but to a home where Christ rules, a home where Christian truth filters down and permeates into every area of human experience. As a biblical backdrop for our thinking in this hour, I would like you to turn to the 127th Psalm. Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Please note, this verse does not say you do not build your home. You do. But the idiocy of thinking that you can build it alone, of thinking that the only component to life is the horizontal, the material, and the failing to recognize there is a vertical dimension, there is a spiritual component without which the horizontal makes no sense. I don't know how many times I've had a couple in my office and invariably in the course of the conversation one or the other or both of them will say, we're absolutely frustrated. We've come to the conclusion we can't do it. And I say, beautiful. You're on the verge of making the greatest discovery in your parental experience. You can, but he can. See, the problem with being a parent is that when you are finally competent, you're out of a job. And I find that a parent's competency is in direct proportion to the age of his children. For the first 11 years, they can do no wrong, and suddenly they hit grease. You know, what happened? Nothing. 
except God is making you a dependent person. Now, in the second stanza of this hymn, begins at verse 3, there are three descriptive terms which the Spirit uses to describe children. First one is in the first part of verse 3. Lo, children are a heritage. The Hebrew word should be translated assignment. May be translated property, possession. But that concept of assignment grabs me as an educator. You begin to see your children as God's assignments to you. They are a part of his curriculum. And my friends, God does not waste children on parents. He gives you the exact children that you need. You see, we tend to think of children in terms of what we do for them. That's only one element. God gives you children because of what he could do for you. And most of us wouldn't be worth a dime without our children. So stop asking, Lord, why did you give me this one? <laughs> Real interesting to talk to a couple, you know, they get child number one and no problems, whatever. You know, everything is conformity, all systems are go. And then number two arrives, sort of a beast out of the sea. He's got two tigers in his tank. And everything they tried on the first one doesn't work on the second one. And I just love to sit by and say, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I have four children, all the combination of the same product of genes. And the interesting thing is that no two of them are exactly alike. I can't motivate them alike. I can't discipline them alike. I got one kid. I think if I said to him, is that the best you could do? That'd be the last he would do. I got another one, I think if I said to him, is that the best you could do? He comes right up out of the rocks. It's a tremendous challenge. But what many of us are looking for is somebody who's got the patent medicine answers. You know, the formula. What are the five things you always do under every occasion and you will have guaranteed results? My friend, if you ever find that person, don't believe them. <laughs> Parenthood is a tremendously creative task. And it demands a lot of dependency and a realization that your need is not partial, but total. The second word is found in the latter part of verse 3. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. Not accident, not tragedy, but a sign of his favor. That will do something for you, my parent friend. You've never done this before. Go home tonight, walk into the rooms of your children after they've fallen off to sleep, fall down by that crib or by that bed, and thank God for that fresh evidence of his love. That's a sign of his favor upon your life. But I think I hear someone saying, but what about us? We don't have any children. We can't have any children. Is that a sign of God's disfavor? 
That's a non sequitur argument. It does not follow through. If you have children, you have proof positive in that form of the favor of God. But my friends, you are related to a very creative God, and he has an infinite number of ways of favoring his children. And it's altogether possible that there are some of you here who may not be privileged by God to have children, but who have spent a lot of your time building in the lives of other children whose parents couldn't care less. In fact, there are some of us here this morning who would never be here, spiritually speaking, if we were dependent upon our parents. If I were dependent upon my parents for spiritual reality, I'd be dead. I'd probably be in hell. But I can think of some couples in my church in Philadelphia where I was reared, where I was brought to Christ, where I was nurtured. I think of three couples particularly, none of whom ever had a child of their own. But you know, I thank God upon every remembrance of the way God used them to build into my life. The third thing I want you to note is in verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4, as arrows. There it is. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. In a society that brainwashes you to believe too and no more. And the unfortunate thing with many a young person is they buy that line until finally they wake up someday discovering that it's no longer an option and that they were sold a bill of goods by an unregenerate society. I am not suggesting that you should have more than two children. I am suggesting you better seek the face of God and get his direction, not the directions of a pagan society. There is no fulfillment, ladies and gentlemen, comparable to the fulfillment of parenthood. No amount of business or professional or academic success will in any way compensate for failure as a parent. And conversely, no success in these areas will even begin to compare with the success of parenthood. I think for the first time, I am beginning to understand what John meant when he said, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. And I want you to know, my friend, if I die today, I want you to know that I will die a fulfilled man on the basis of my children alone. If God should cut off my ministry at this point, I believe it will be sustained through the life and the ministry of these four kids, just as it is right now. Now, let's take the truth resident in this portion of the Word of God, and let's relate it to our experience. And I'd like to share with you a number of principles, as our time holds out, for developing leadership in the home. First principle I want to suggest to you is begin early. Greatest weakness in our families is that we become sensitive as to the process after it's too late. A family is a process of taking a person 
from complete dependence to complete independence or better interdependence. And that's a process. It's a process that begins very early and it's divided into two major periods. First 11 years of a child's life and from age 12 usually to marriage. First period, the period of childhood. The second period, the period of adolescence. And there is a cause-effect relationship. What happens in the first 11 years will largely determine what happens in the next period of time. Now, there are several things that you do with your children, and I'd like to spell them out and then put them in terms of some other principles. First thing you communicate to your child during these period, this, these first 11 years, is you communicate attitudes. In fact, by the time a child is three years of age, you have largely set him in concrete in terms of much of his life. And I find that many times, one of my students will come up and say, well, Prof, you know, I really got to get down to business now and his family, I got a boy. I say, how old is he? Three. You're tragically late. And this is why, for the many of you who are not married, my friend, it is much more important that you be the right person rather than that you find the right partner. What happens is that often a young couple will marry and they will marry in their immaturity and you got two problem people and that develops a problem partnership and then you bring children into that type of relationship. You sat down with a couple yesterday who are tearing each other apart in terms of their own relationships as a couple, trying to solve their own problems and they got three kids and the kids are climbing the wall. They are not the problems of the kids, they are the problems of the parents. Your attitudes are extremely infectious, and a child very early picks this up. My daughter is a specialist in the field of neonatology and recently wrote a paper for me, which we are publishing, and the interesting thing is, over and over and over again, the data continues to come through that even in a nursery, before the child ever goes home, there is world, a world of attitude that is communicated to that child. Say nothing of what happens to that child the moment the child moves into that home. The second thing, he develops relationships with the most significant persons in all of the world, his parents, brothers and sisters. By the way, do your kids fight in your home? Don't do that up here? Boy, in our home, we used to have knockdown drag outs. We fought the Civil War over every week, sometimes twice in one day. But you know, in the afternoon, you change sides. People say, oh, I'm so concerned my children are fighting, and I don't know if they'll ever make it. I say, no, it's great preparation for marriage. It's like a polishing machine. Boy, it really knocks off the rough edges. 
And if the relationship that you as a husband has to your wife is a poor one, then you are rearing a collection of perverts in your home. It really makes very little difference what you say to them. It makes very little difference what you teach them by way of moral and spiritual truth. It's how I relate to my wife. If I am a warm, tender, loving man who communicates this to my wife, that's what my children pick up. And if I'm a beast with my wife, no matter what I tell my sons, I'm rearing perverts. And that's why I hope you're not ashamed to express your love to your mate in the presence of your children. Now don't evaluate this on the basis of their evaluation, especially if they're teenagers. Because the moment you embrace, they're going to, oh no, here we go again. Tons sickening. My son, Bill, who's here in this area, brought one of his buddies into the living room one day. My wife and I were embracing in the living room. And he said, oh, good night. We're going to have to wait a minute. His friend said, how come? Oh, my parents are in there smooching again. His kid said, let's go in. <laughs> This little kid looks him straight in the eye and says, Boy, Bill, it must be wonderful to have a father that loves your mother. So I don't even know who my father is. Every night we got a different jerk in that house. It must be wonderful to have a father that loves your mother. And my friend, to a little kid that grows up in a home who takes that for granted, he gets a liberal arts education crammed right down the center of, your th of his throat. And there's some of you kids who come from pagan homes and come from broken homes, and my friend, you'd give your right arm if you ever saw your mother and your father embrace. That's the greatest heritage you will ever give to your children, and it's the finest preparation for marriage. Third thing, the habit patterns that you develop. Every major asset that you have is largely the product of your home, and conversely, every major liability. I had a student some years ago, seven minutes late to everything. Eight o'clock class in the morning, seven minutes after eight. Here he comes. Three o'clock in the after. Seven after, he's coming in. Finally, he was graduated, seven minutes late. Everybody was in, he came running down the aisle. Went out, took a church, asked me to come for some meetings. Everyone started, seven minutes late. Man, this guy's gonna be seven minutes late at the rapture. Except God's going to have everything to do with it, but he's going to drag his feet on the way up. I'll clue you. And one day we sat down to talk about it. You know where he learned that? His home. You'd be absolutely amazed, my friend, to discover what you communicate to your children in the environment of a home. No wonder someone has called it the world's greatest university. Harvard, MIT, the whole group never infects a person as permanently as does that family and in a very determinative way. Now, we say there's a cause-effect relationship. You see, if the attitudes are negative, if the relationships have been decimated, and if the habit patterns have never been built, then when he comes into the teenage period where he has to internalize all this truth for himself, he's in hot water. And that's why many a teenager has to go out and prove something. 
Because some father said to him, look, son, if you do that, never put your foot in his door again. And he goes out to do it, to prove that he's that independent. No good parent ever throws a challenge down like that. And no kid reared in a home where he has a good relationship, such as we have described, has to prove anything. He's got all of the evidence he needs right in his own family. He's been fed independent. He's been communicated to in the area of love. So this girl doesn't have to go out and shack up with every guy out at the campus to prove that somebody loves her. She's got all of the evidence that she needs. And when some joker comes along with a typical line saying, well, you know, if you really love me, you would give everything, she can come right back and say, you know, if you really love me, you would never ask me to do anything that would cause me to lose respect for myself or for you. See, that comes out of a home where attitudes, relationships, habit patterns have been built solidly for 11 years in the life of a child. Now, the second thing that I want to suggest to you grows out of this. It's because of this that I would say very emphatically to you, magnify relationships and minimize rules. If I had one criticism of the homes in which I go that are Christian, I would say they are suffocating from a fog of moralism. Everybody's sitting around as if they're on a crate of eggs, scared to do anything, scared to move, to talk, to enjoy it. You know, you go into that home and they all sit there as if they're sitting on a crate of eggs. We're Christian. Woo! <laughs> and all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, the kid comes around like that, and the milk goes all over the table, all over me. And everybody hits the fan. Oh, 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 oh. it's Professor Hendricks. Say, relax, thanks for making me at home. <laughs> oh, Mark, say, look, don't explain, lady. If a person has children, you don't need to explain. And if they don't have children, no amount of explanation will help. <laughs> I was born and reared in a Pennsylvania Dutch home. And I don't know what that says to you, but let me tell you what it involves. My grandmother reared me. My home was absolutely immaculate. My basement was cleaner than most homes that I get into. I mean, you could eat off the floor. My grandmother used to scrub down the, the front concrete steps three times every day by hand. We used to kid her, Grandma, when you die, we're going to bury you with a mop and a broom. <laughs> well, then I got married. <laughs> and my wife didn't exactly come out of this kind of a home, which is the understatement of this generation. <laughs> and we had some fascinating adjustments. And we got four kids, and I can still remember those kids come flying through the door, and they'd walk right by me, not even say hi, and throw themselves in the arms of my wife and say, look, mommy, look what I drawed. And you know, that used to bug me. Boy, time after time. <laughs> you know, here they are, bypassing great big spiritual me. <laughs> So one day I sat down and I said, you know, if I were my kids, I wouldn't talk to me either. 
You know what my wife taught me? Good relationships are much more important than a clean home. Did you ever learn that? Better homes and gardens will never teach you that. <laughs> what a fraud. Should be entitled Better Houses and Gardens. Lovely to look at. Horrible to live in. I can still remember my wife spending hours scrubbing that floor in the kitchen, man, getting a high polish on that. We were having some friends over, and she was so proud of it. And all of a sudden, Bob, my oldest boy, came plowing through that door with the dirtiest feet you've ever seen to show her something that he had done in school. And man, she just embraced the kid and hugged the living daylights while I'm up the wall. And after the kid was gone, I can still remember my dear wife grabbing my head and pulling it close to her and saying, Sweetheart, we can always clean the floor again, but we can't build a relationship again. You ever learn that? See, we got neurotic, compulsive parents who have this phony idea that a Christian home is a home in which everything is perfect. Well, my friend, that could never be, because you're the parents. <laughs> Don't look at me that way. You're people, and people have problems. And to me, the exciting thing is to bring kids up in a home where you have all of the same problems that everybody else has, but you have a different perspective. Christian is not a person without problems. He's a person who has the problem solver living within. What a different perspective this makes upon a family. Third, I'll try this one on for size. Boy, it's obvious we got some people who have some good wherewithal to develop this in this group. Enjoy your home life. Now, most of us don't enjoy it, we endure it. And I often ask parents, you know, how attractive is your home? Oh, man, they said, we just got some wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, and we got some coordinated drapes, and we got a third-color TV. No, that won't make it attractive. That, I'm, that's just the junk you got under one mortgage. What I'm really interested in is what is the climate of your home? Is it fun to be there? We have two students from one home. I wish we had 502 more just like them. In my 20-some years of teaching in seminary, I have never encountered two guys who really had it all together and who are making the kind of impact they are making. And one day I was entertaining their home in California, and I got the picture. I met their parents, very lovely, gracious Christian people for real, very humble people, not well-educated, lived on a little peach farm, and reared these two boys and three girls, all of whom are in Christian work today. After I came out of that home, I met one of the guys out on the road one day, and I said, hey, Ed, tell me what you remember most about your father. Well, he said, Prof, I remember a lot of things about him. I said, well, can you think of something specific? He said, yeah. 
He said, I used to throw a paper route very early in the morning, get up about 4 o'clock, and I used to come by my father's door. And often the jar, the door would be ajar, and I'd look in, and there'd be my father on his knees in prayer. Man, it made a profound impression on me. You know, nobody watching, nobody here from the church. You're not getting any brownie points. You know, just, that's the passion of his heart. And he said, the second thing I remember my father foremost is his rolling on the floor with laughter with us kids. And I thought to myself, what an invincible combination. By the way, what will they remember you for? On his knees in prayer and rolling on the floor with laughter. And I'm finding that the homes that are distinctively Christian are the most enjoyable places to be in all the world. My friend, the guy out there on a common on his way to hell is in no position to laugh. The only person who has a right to laugh is the person who is liberated and secure in Jesus Christ. Do you have many times I travel around and say, How are you, brother? Well, pretty good under the circumstances. What in the world are you doing under there? where he spends the bulk of his time. His face looks like a frontispiece to the book of Lamentations. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm serving Jesus. Say, so really? Don't tell anybody, will you? Fourth, set goals. I had a family life seminar in the city of Chicago a few years ago. A businessman came. I didn't find this out till about uh, nine months later. He said, hey, you remember that uh, family conference you conducted? I said, certainly, I've never forgotten. He said, neither have I. He said, you know, I made a statement in that thing that absolutely wiped me out. You said, when's the last time that you and your wife went off somewhere for a weekend and sat down to evaluate your home life and to set up some goals? He said, I never heard anything you said from there on out. He said, would you believe it? I just came off a two-week planning session with our company in which we had all of our goals, the whole thing worked out for the year 2000. And suddenly it dawned on me, man, I don't have a clue what we're going to do next week. So I went home and I called up a Holiday Inn in our area and I said, look, I want a reservation for my wife and for myself Friday night, Saturday, and all day Sunday. And he said, we went out there, we had a wonderful time together, so we really got to know each other. And then he said, we got the word out, we began to study it, we got down on our knees and prayed, we got some paper out, we started a plan. What do we trust in God for in our kids? What do we really want to develop? His face lit up. He said, would you believe it? He said, I've seen more dramatic, obviously divine changes in the life of our family in the last nine months than I've seen in nine years. Of course, my friend. He set some goals. You see, many a home is like a sand dune. Sand dunes are not formed by purposes. They are formed by influences. And what happens in many a home is that we do not act, we merely react. And that's dangerous because then you're always liable of setting up another extreme whenever you react. So an interesting definition of a fanatic some time ago. It said, a fanatic is a man who redoubles his efforts after he has lost sight of his goals. 
A fifth. I want you to think this through in terms of its implications. Involve the whole family in community penetration. Now let's back off a minute and discover what's happened among many of us. You've sort of gotten this crazy idea, I think often through the doctrine of biblical separation, which we have totally misunderstood. Biblical separation does not involve isolation. It involves immunization. It does not involve going out of the world. It involves penetrating the world without being complicated by its sins. So what happens is, well, a woman expressed it. She came up to me at the church some time ago. She said, hey, guess what? I said, what, what, what happened? She said, we moved. Wonderful. Yeah, she says, terrific. And we discover we're living next door to a Christian couple. Oh, I said, how unfortunate. It's how unfortunate. She said, I think it's wonderful. I said, I think it's horrible. So how could it be horrible? I said, just think, Phil, what it would be like if God placed you in a community in which you are the only Christian on the block and God sovereignly placed you there as his representative to that block. He said, man, I never thought of it that way. That's exactly right. And the average person is covered over with self-pity. Man, I'm the only guy out there at the college. <laughs> Wonderful. What a parish you got. How many students they got? Oh, about 8,000. Great, that's a pretty good parish to start with. And the same thing is true down at the office. You're the only Christian in that outfit? Yeah, that's right, boy. Fantastic. God placed you in that particular organization because his, he's your, you are his beachhead. And he wants you to reach it for Jesus Christ. I can still remember our church setting up a ski trip to Colorado. We now do this every year. It's been one of the greatest means of penetration into our community to reach kids for Christ. We decided that on this one, in order to go on the ski trip, you had to take at least one other person as your guest who didn't know Jesus Christ as the Savior. Well, I had two kids in high school at the time, and I can still remember them coming home, and they, at family worship, said, Man, Dad, Mom, how about praying? that God will open up some opportunities for us to reach some of these kids at the high school. I said, great, let's pray about it. I said, I'll tell you what else we'll do. Why don't we get some slides of this area and of the other trips and uh, we'll bring some kids over here. We'll show them what they're in for. Hey, wait, you do that? Sure, great, we'll get some. So they went out and got a pack of kids to come in. Well, the trip came off, and between the two of them, they took 17 kids lost kids on his trip. And I can still remember going over to the church parking lot when these three Greyhound buses rolled in. And I'm working all over the place trying to find Bev that I figure is in there, Bob, to see if, you know, I can find out how it went. Finally, I saw her and she was cleaning the steam off the window like crazy and I saw his little two hands go up and she held up ten. And I knew what she was talking about. Ten of those kids had trusted Christ as their Savior. For your information, two of them are in our student body. But you see what happens is that many a kid comes up in a Christian home where he has never seen anybody trust the Savior as a result of the penetration of that home. 
Do you have lost people into your home? Oh, Brother Hendricks, ours is a Christian home. Great, that's a beautiful exposure. Oh, but they're liable to smoke. Great, put some ashtrays out. <laughs> Boy, last Christmas, Christmas before, I'm losing track of time anymore. We had 29 pagans in our home. Did you ever have that many? That's wall-to-wall -wall pagan. What's the most exciting type of thing? You know, there they are, boy. You know, the amazing thing is to hear the comments of this type of thing. So you know what I think? I think the devil has fogged us out with the result that many of us develop inferiority feelings. You know, I'm a Christian. <laughs> Every now and then we make a little foray out into pagan territory and get shot at. You know, back to the group, we got to come again. The whole name of the game is to take people and develop them into the place where they can penetrate that community. And you know what happens today? I'll tell you. The Christian home in your generation is becoming more and more of a phenomenon. And if you as a couple are happily married, uh, believe me, friend, you're a miracle. I can still remember my oldest girl when I went off to college, to university, came running back, during the Christmas break, she said, you know, you guys are a phenomenon. Well, we've known that for years. But <laughs> you know, how? She said, man, I can't find anybody that's still married to the same person out there and whose parents are still enjoying a relationship. You guys are kind of on a perpetual honeymoon. My wife had the woman next door last week come over, and she said, you know, Gene, I... What makes this outfit tick? <laughs> you ever get anybody ask you? That's quite a question, you know. What, what makes this thing? You guys over here seem to enjoy life. Well, that's amazing. Especially when most people are going to hell in a hat box. And the misery of the process is just incredible. And we're sitting around like a bunch of inferior shot through with inferior feelings, thinking, you know, poor us, we're Christian. And the truth of the matter is you have so much to contribute to your generation that it hurts to think that we keep it to ourselves. God never gave you truth and experience to be bottled, but to be shared. Well, let me try one more on for size with you. And that is, surround your family with significant persons. Now, will you allow me one personal gripe today? I have one. Well, my great gripes is that when I go over to people's homes for dinner, to be entertained, all the kids disappear in the woodwork. You know, this one's shoved in the bureau drawer. That one ends up in a closet. Next one gets put down in a basement with the German Shepherd. <laughs> you know, I've often thought, boy, what an insult. You mean to tell me you think I'm that, that significant? I used to tell people when I invited them over to our home, I said, look, you're coming over to our house tonight. Yeah, yeah, we're looking really looking forward to it, my wife and I. I said, well, really? I just want you to know what you're getting into because there's going to be four pair of eyes staring you right down the center of your throat. So, you know, if you want to bail out, now's the time to get out. Oh, great. <laughs> you 
because I wouldn't miss it. I happen to believe these people are the most significant people in our community. And I see our leading otologist sitting across the table saying in the presence of my kids, you know, I'm discovering that medicine is simply a means to a greater end as a Christian. And my primary witness is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I see a middle linebacker for the Cowboys sitting across that table saying in the presence of my kids, you know, football is peanuts compared with winning boys for Jesus Christ. So he walks out the front door of the Cowboy organization with a half a year to go for retirement in the NFL to start a camp in Lumberton, Mississippi, where he's winning a steady stream of kids for Christ. And he did it by mortgaging his home and the whole works to buy the property to get started in the camp. My kids are sitting on the other side listening to this whole thing. See, that's highly infectious. And what you ask yourself is, do I have anything to contribute to my children? And am I exposing them to people who can build into their lives? Well, let me add one more. Trust the Spirit of God to do for your children what He alone has done for you. You know what I like to do sometimes? I like to teach people everything that the Lord has graciously shared with me about rearing children, and then finally say, now look, relax in the Lord. Because what happens is the average Christian parent particularly gets so uptight Boy, I'm really going to pull this thing off. That they managed to blow it clean out of the saddle. And I say, you know, when you finally come to grips with the fact that except the Lord build the house, you're laboring in vain if you're building it. And as he goes on to say, don't get up a little earlier and don't stay up a little later to intensify your efforts in a typical American fashion because that won't help you at all. All you'll live to do is to eat the bread of sorrow. It's coming with the realization, Lord, I can't, but you can. And the miracle of it all is that you want to use me as your instrument to do it. 2 Timothy 1.7 is a good verse for parents. God has not given us the spirit of fear, of frustration, but of ability, of love, and of a disciplined mind. All right, let's pray. Father. You're so patient with us. We're poor learners. We're slow learners. We're dull. We're insensitive. Father, we pray that you will continue to open us up and sensitize us by the Spirit of God. Father, make these days to be very significant because of what you said to us and because of what we resolve to do by your grace. And we trust you with expectation because you are a great God and we've learned to expect great things at your hand. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to Dr. Howard Hendricks, affectionately known as the Prof. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.